In this election season, there's a lot of talk about the United States going into decline. Well, on the show today, we discuss what if that's what's happening? And not just the loud noises coming from this particular political cycle, but what if there's something big going on here, something historic? A turning point that forces the United States to choose one of two paths. That of the British, who gave up their empire and preserved their democracy, or that of the Romans, who didn't. From PRJ Media, this is The Nutshell Podcast. On today's show, Ryan spoke with John, who introduces us to a book called Nemesis, The Last Days of the American Republic. Author Chalmers Johnson was a former CIA consultant, and in the 80s, favored a strong military buildup against the Soviet Union. But now, he warns that American democracy is deeply threatened by its foreign interventions and extensive military footprint, including 800 foreign bases and military installations worldwide. The Romans overreached, and their republic went from a democracy to a dictatorship. Could it happen to the American Republic? Let's talk Nemesis, man. Nemesis. So the the subtitle is last the last days of the American Republic, and we can get into discussing that more in depth and what that means. But it's kind of straightforward. But Nemesis. Why why does this author use the word Nemesis? Nemesis is the goddess of retribution in Greek mythology. That's so, intense. Yeah, so she gets the people who've been arrogant before the gods back. Wow. Um, she, she like, you know, so to speak, brings the chickens home to roost. Hmm. So I understand that the author it was not only a professor, uh, but he also had a lot of government experience. He was a former CIA guy. Uh, what What is he drawing on? What experience is he pulling from in writing this book? Uh, Chalmers Johnson was, as you mentioned, a consultant for the CIA for I don't know, about six years. Um, he focused on China, and he was a professor at UC Berkeley. He, you know how it's one of the best institutions in, in the world, right? Sure. And he has a PhD in political science from there. And actually, I should say he had a PhD in political science. Um, he did pass away after writing this book. So anyway, he was also a naval officer in the in Japan during the Korean War. He is a pretty prolific author. He's written books about American hegemony and imperialism, like this book. Okay. Well, I think it's, it's good to note all of that experience because when you see a book about American hegemony and the decline of the U.S. empire and a guy who's from UC Berkeley, you're thinking, okay, this... This sandaled hippie is saying things that he doesn't know anything about, but that's very clearly not the case here. He has plenty of military experience yeah. that he's drawing from, uh, and he's writing about military matters. So that's good to keep in mind here. Yeah, you, even when I was reading the book, I got the sense from his style, from the words that he chose, that that this is a guy who's very like straightforward, very concise, very direct, and hmm. and that may come from his background. Interesting. Okay. So, so this book gets into some broad discussions, which, uh, which we will get to, but I want to start with something that people will find 
easy to grasp, or I did anyway, and that is U.S. military bases overseas. And this is a good entry point, I think, into this bigger topic of empire. Most people know that the U.S. has bases in places like Japan and South Korea and Germany, right, where we have a legacy. We, we fought a war there. There's a strong partnership today. Um, right. Most people know about Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. So I think in the public consciousness, there is a feeling like, yeah, we've, we've got a strong foothold in, a, in a, quite a few places. But it sounds like there is a bigger scale than most people imagine. I mean, when, when it comes to bases, what are we talking about? I mean, the official sources say that the U.S. is around 740 foreign bases. And really? that was as of, yeah, that was as of 2005. Okay, this book is, uh, you know, about eight years old. So the data is coming from then. However, it seems to be fairly stable. There has been a, a realignment since then. But, but more or less, let's say about, you know, 700, a little bit more maybe. Um, but, but that's in the official data. So you have to take that into account. And should we assume that over time, the number of bases would just keep going up and up and up? Or is this the kind of thing that fluctuates? It does fluctuate, uh, but that is is kind of dependent on maybe the, the larger picture. You know, during the Iraq war, at least at the very beginning of it, when deployment was happening, um, you know, the, that number actually kind of shot up to 860, if I remember correctly from the book. And then it went back down. Um, so yeah, that, that number may change a little bit and it may kind of grow steadily over time or maybe shrink, you know, but it's going to remain pretty constant as long as the U.S. is is the major superpower. But but let me kind of like dig deeper into this because as I said, those are official uh, numbers. You know, obviously there there's probably going to be a lot more and there are a lot more that aren't listed, but yeah. let's talk about how much they're worth. Okay, so the overseas bases alone in 2005 were worth 127 billion dollars and that's a very conservative estimate and and if you're talking about like all bases overseas and domestic then that total is 658 billion so i mean we're talking about a lot of money wow okay okay so this is substantial we're not talking about just uh, a few a scattering of bases here and there this is a big big network yeah and in network is you know, right, because it's also about people. Yeah. Um, so talking about the numbers of people, 200,000 around uh, uniformed personnel and about 200,000 dependents and, and Department of Defense civilians are deployed overseas. So, you know, that's 400,000 right there overseas. Um, worldwide totals, though, I'm just talking about, you know, worldwide. So here and abroad, about 1,800,000 military personnel, 500,000 Defense Department civil service employees, and then there are local hires abroad, right? And that's about 200,000. So, I mean, we're talking about 2.5 million people here employed by, you know, the, the Department of Defense. And that's directly. Well, I'm glad you brought up the people because I, I, that was something that I was wondering about as I looked into this book. I mean, the author is a military guy, and I know that within the military, there's a range of opinions on all kinds of things. It's not a monolith, but this is a, this is a book that's forecasting the end of American hegemony 
and advocating that U.S. power projection and the number of bases scale back dramatically. And I was thinking that upon hearing the topic, there are probably a lot of people who might kind of recoil. It's it's it sounds you know it might make some people defensive, particularly some of these millions of people that you're talking about who have served on bases overseas and maybe with good reason feel like they've done some good where they have been. So they have they've had personal experiences with some of these bases. So um, I wonder how how we can communicate with somebody like that who has maybe a relationship with one of these places that we're talking about. They've been a part of this network. Um, This topic may make some people feel a little defensive. I mean, help me reach those people. Why why should this matter to all of us? You know, that that's, it's an important question because whenever you talk about this stuff and, and I've had plenty of experience talking about this with people who are, involved in this um a lot of my family a lot of the people i grew up with you know i grew up in a, in a military town one of the largest military bases in the country i grew up you know right down the street from it yeah i um, went to school with people went to school with general sons you know basically I've, I've been around this the people aspect of it my whole life and and i do find that that for you know good reason people do feel somewhat defensive when you bring this up but but this book isn't about attacking them. It's it's about attacking how the system is set up. Uh, and Johnson in the book rightfully indicates that a lot of these people go into the, the military because it, it's really a great way out. It's a great way to, to escape sort of the, the roadblocks that have been put up in American society, the cul-de-sacs as, he's, as he calls them, cul-de-sacs of racism, cul-de-sacs of, of worker oppression, cul-de-sacs of, of dead economic zones, right? Like we think of Detroit now. There have been many more Detroits in the past. How do you get out of Detroit? Well, going into the U.S. military is one great way to do that. Yeah. But overall, um, this book is and his argument more so than the book is important for everybody. It's important for you. It's important for the general son. It's important for the general himself. And that's because it's about how the health of our democracy is, is in peril because of this increased militarism. It's not an attack on, on individuals or, or even the groups, you know, we're moving away from becoming a democracy. We're becoming an empire and we're losing control of our society you know, of our government, of our personal liberties and our, and our privacy. So basically, you know, if, if, if any of that is important to you, then it's important to pay attention to this argument. Um, and, you know, we have, to, we have to recognize that even though we participate in it, doesn't mean necessarily that, you know, we should kind of like shoulder the blame for that. And, and that's how I hope people kind of take this. Good. Well, we'll, we'll get into that in a minute, what the author means with respect to democracy and potential impacts. But I want to bring up the point that this book is um, a little bit, I won't say dated because that's the wrong word. It it, it was written in 2007. That's pretty recent in the scheme of things. But I do want to bring it up because that was a specific moment in time with a lot of anger and maybe, maybe uh, a peak in recent imperialistic activity, right? We were at this, we were at the high water mark of 
U.S. troops in Iraq. There were 166,000 uh, troops in Iraq that year that this this book was published, and there was just a lot of anger at the war, at uh, the people dying, um, at President Bush at that time, and at this moment when you and I are talking in, in 2016, it's not perfect, but it does seem like some things are different, right? We have a president who has has opposed going into uh, Syria and, and putting boots on the ground in Syria, um, who has pulled troops out of Iraq, and who was elected on a promise to, to wrap up that war. So it seems like some things are, are different. And I, I wonder, although it hasn't been that long, do you think that anything has changed in this short stretch of time between Bush and Obama? I mean, is, is, has the book lost any of its relevance? So, look, you, you mentioned one thing. You said that this book maybe was written in at a peak, a recent peak in imperialistic activity. Um, I would argue that, you know, it, if you're looking at it visibly, then maybe. Yeah. Obviously, the invasion of a, of a country is, is, you know, imperialistic, but it's very visible. What's not so visible is kind of the behind-the-scenes stuff, and the drone wars are definitely the behind-the-scenes stuff. So, uh, you know, I would argue that our imperialistic activity has more or less remained constant. Sure, maybe kind of scaled back on some level in terms of, you know, invading a country, but but it remains. And and that is part of a bigger point that I, that I want to make, that, you know, the details may change over time. Over the past 10 years, they definitely have. But the bigger picture remains. I mean, this book isn't about war. It's not, not about the war in Iraq, even though that features prominently in it. Um, it's about how over the past, let's say, 60 plus years, our society has become militarized. And our economy depends on the military, right? Um, and that's been the case from post-World War II until now and even throughout World War II. You know, now we, we sort of practice military Keynesianism, right? And, and that hasn't changed from Bush to Obama. Sure. Eisenhower's military industrial complex, right? Right. And, and we're all sort of familiar with that. But, you know, one thing that we maybe don't see or maybe we don't realize is that, you know, by participating in that, by relying on the military industrial complex, we tend to give up our democracy, our privacy, our freedoms for the sake of war, for the sake of, of a war economy. And, and most recently, because of threats. And we relinquish our power in society to the military. Um, and that's for a specific reason. If you, know, if you think about how military Keynesianism works, it, it can be done without the participation of the people, without the public interest, right? And that's kind of different from non-military state spending. If, if you're building roads, if you're, if you're building bridges, then... You know, the people kind of have some say in it. It's very visible. Those contracts are, are out in the open. Um, I mean, you literally see it every day. But when we're talking about which missiles to, to develop or which fighter jets to build, that is, is in a black box. We can't see that. We don't participate in those decisions. And, and that is the biggest kind of um, point that, that, you know, military Keynesianism is or how military Keynesianism is is destroying our, our democracy. Um, and, and this comes at the same time as when the president 
is sort of expanding you know their power as well the president the office of the presidency has has used military keynesianism and in our dependence on the military industrial complex to kind of expand the presidency and that's had these drastic effects in our democracy hmm. let's let's take that to its extreme with an example that the author uh, starts the book off with and that's a comparison between the respective rises and falls of the the Roman Empire, um, the United States, and the British uh, Empire. And we'll, we'll get to the British in a second, but just to simplify, let's let's talk Rome versus the United States. Um, I think that this is probably not a totally foreign concept to listeners. I mean, no, not at all. It's been it's been thrown about before, um, and it, and it's kind of it's kind of an easy comparison to make because Rome is is a well-known example. Um, but, you know, I think the basics of the comparison are pretty obvious. Uh, both of these, both Rome and the U.S. spanned a big chunk of the globe, and both are republics, right? So, so, so far we're we're kind of with it right and there and we both have a at least a couple hundred years under our belts rome rome had longer than us but i want to understand more about this you know can you hit the highlights on the comparison between rome and the us yeah the highlights are are all that i will hit um i don't want to turn this into a a you know history podcast of of the roman republic right but you know you're right. This is not a foreign concept, but it actually is one, in my opinion, that is is dangerous. And it's dangerous because we tend to look at history as as linear, as something that uh, repeats itself. There's that common phrase, right, that you know, if you don't learn history, you're bound to repeat it. And then there's sort of the, the corollary to that is that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. I forgot who said that, but, you know, that's all over the place. I want to say it was George Orwell, but don't quote me on that. Um, but anyway, as you may remember, I, I majored in history. Um, that doesn't mean much, but it does mean that I got a little bit from it, right? And and here's here's my, my take on this to kind of like frame our conversation. When we look at the past, we're not really looking at the past with an objective eye ever. No matter how objective you think you want to be, you're never going to be objective because there's always things that you're going to omit. Um, and, and looking at the past tells us actually more about what we're thinking about at the present and the things that we're focusing on in the present. So I kind of want to make sure that's clear before we go into this because Rome, with all the, the similarities that it has in terms of its government, its structure, its people, its values even, is not the U.S. in 2016. We're talking about a completely different world. We're talking about completely different people. Um, and that's really important, but, but kind of like keeping that in mind, you know, Rome at its peak was a Republic, as you mentioned, but they accumulated these colonies over time. They built an empire and, and more or less in doing so, they, they sacrificed their democracy and, 
you know, we can talk about some of the similarities between Rome and the U.S. in that context alone. We could think about, you know, Rome fell to its excesses of wealth, and this is coming straight from the book, bad taste, arrogance, and its impulse towards milita- militarism. And and Chalmers Johnson kind of calls this, you know, the puerile vision of politics and war. I love the word puerile, right. by the way. Um yeah, puer just means boy in Latin, so it's kind of a, you know, it means juvenile in English, so it's kind of like a fun way to, to Very link. UC Berkeley kind of word. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun way to link, you know, the, the Roman Republic to the modern U.S. But anyway, um, he said, like, the puerile version of politics and war, you know, that Rome is practicing, which is very much like our shop-until-you-drop world of American consumerism. And, and he kind of paints this metaphor of the cook in roman times um he he uses that as as an example here he says you know the cook at first in rome in its early republic days was the least valued slave of all Hmm. look why why are you going to spend money on on a cook all you do all you need to do is eat you need somebody to prepare food for you and this was in like the the very um rugged stage of rome's republic the very like you know, agrarian days of, of when Rome was pure and Rome was, was very much based on its values, on its Republican ideals. But later on, as they gained more and more of these colonies and they became more wealthy, then the cook was actually the most valued slave because the cook then could create these extravagant meals. They could show off your wealth. Hmm. The, the better meals that the, the cook could make, the more you are respected in Roman society because what was what was valuable was not the fact that you were just getting food, but it was the presentation of the food. And, and that's sort of um, you know analogous to, to what Johnson is comparing the U.S. to these days. So, you know, there's other things too that the, the Romans in their quest to build empire, you know, killed to inspire terror and, and quote, not in a savage frenzy, but as the disciplined components of a fighting machine and johnson also mentions these like preemptive strikes against you know anybody who kind of appeared to be an opponent and and it was just to kind of keep them in check he called you know he said anybody who who may be showing themselves as a growing uppity they needed to be put in check preemptively and over time you know Rome fell, and that overreach was definitely part of it. In the last couple thousand years of the histories of imperialistic republics or monarchies, we don't have a whole lot to draw on, right? So I guess we're dealing with pretty limited examples, but the the two that the author brings up are uh, Rome, obviously, and then also the British Empire, and he says that the choices that we are uh, faced with in the United States is to follow one of those. That's that's kind of his way of framing this. Either you continue the overreach, uh, you continue the colonies, you continue the warlike behavior as the Romans did, and you I guess stretch yourself too thin. Or like the British, you have you have a moment in time where you have a recognition, like the British did after World War II, where you know we can't keep doing both of these things we can't we can't maintain a, a huge colony in india for example while maintaining peace and stability and democracy at home 
So do you find that that is a fair choice that he's offering us? Yeah, I mean, let's let's just think about this for a second. It's really hard to go around the world, bomb people, shoot people into submission for economic or territorial gain, whatever it may be, right? And then come back home, give your people education, give your people the freedom to express themselves, give the people the power to petition the government, and hold free and fair elections and not expect the people to kind of realize what's going on and, and be really mad about it and and expect to keep power. You know, that's yeah. that's a really difficult thing to do. So, you know, England took a different route. England dismantled their empire because they saw that it was unsustainable to be both an empire and a democracy, that at some point when you oppress abroad and liberate at home you, you just would face the face the backlash at home and you wouldn't be able to either maintain power or you wouldn't be able to maintain your empire abroad one of those at some point had to give Let's get into the details of this network of bases, because this, I think, is actually maybe more interesting than some people might think at first glance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bases is not like a sexy sort of idea, right? Like, yeah. Hey, let's talk about military bases. It's not, but I think I think what needs to be understood by more people and... and uh, is that there is a variety to what these look like. They are not all giant Okinawa-style establishments. There are different sizes. There are some smaller bases that the U.S. military refers to as lily pads, which basically just have some essentials on them, and they lease the land from um, some country that you've never even heard of. Um, <laughs> I mean, what, what, all, what all is out there? What, what kind of bases are out there? There are, at least in the book, what Chalmers Johnson outlines, there are three types of bases. Okay, so the first is this big one that you're talking about, the main operating bases. And those are these, you know, huge, huge bases in these countries that you have heard of. And they have permanently stationed combat forces. They have, you know, huge amounts of infrastructure like barracks, runways, hangars, ports, um, you know, you name it, it's there. They have these command and control headquarters. They have uh, schools, yeah. hospitals, movie theaters, all of malls, these. Yeah, right? Movie theater. They have everything, man. They call these places like Little America, but even though they're not really like the culture of mainstream America, it looks like a Little America. And like I said, these are in places like Germany, Japan, Italy, uh, South Korea, you name it. You probably know somebody who has been stationed on one of these. Um, you know, MOBs, main operating bases, if you know people in the military. Hmm. But okay, so the next type is a little bit smaller. We're decreasing in size as we talk about these. And these are called Forward Operational Sites, FOSs. These are, are also major in terms of size, but they're not... I'm sorry, major in, in terms of importance, but they're not major in terms of size. Okay. 
uh, the military kind of goes out of its way, uh, Johnson says, to, to play these down. Like, yeah, we have these bases, but they're not that big. They're, they're, they're there, right? But they're not that big. Anyway, they're, they're pretty important. Um, they're just like a little bit smaller than the MOBs, but the families aren't allowed there. And supposedly, you know, you're supposed to be rotated out in shorter segments, but that's not always the case. And once again, supposedly they are supposed to be non-permanent, but they are. Hmm. (laughs) They're pretty pretty permanent. Most of them are anyways. So anyway, there's the third type, and these are called the Cooperative Security Location, CSLs. And the Defense Department likes to call these, you know, in their great terminology, lily pads. And if you think about it, what do frogs do on lily pad? They jump from one to the other. Hmm. And these these are like, you know, these tiny little bases in those countries that you said that you've never heard of. And they're just kind of there to establish what Johnson calls this, you know, arc of, of instability um, or to kind of establish a U.S. presence in the arc of instability. And, and these sweep across the nation, South America, North Africa, Middle East, Philippines, Indonesia. You know, these are kind of like uh, jumping places for prepositioned weapons and, and munitions. So, you know, you can think of this as, as sort of the links, the, the connectors between the, the other two FOSs the, and the MOBs, the other two types of bases. So these, and these are in places where it sounds like you, you just wouldn't stumble upon them. You, you wouldn't know that they were there unless you knew to look. Yeah, you would find one, you know, in in places like the outback of Paraguay. Um, you would find them in, you know, some tiny Middle Eastern country. And and another point here is that like these tiny Middle Eastern countries maybe don't want people to know that there's a base there. Ah, um, they yes. kind of want to downplay it. So you know that works for the U.S. government as well. The the Middle Eastern country doesn't want to be seen working with, you know, the the great empire. And the U.S. government doesn't want you to know that they have these things. So it's a a very nice sort of connection in in many cases. Smart. Okay. So so some of these countries are, in fact, um, I would venture to say maybe most of them are getting paid, right, for the U.S. to be able to have bases there. Is that is that the basis of a lot of these arrangements? I used to watch college football when I was in high school, and there was this guy who who would always like be set up to say this one line, "Not so fast, my friend," and uh, and that's what I want to say to you. I'm glad right to now. give you that chance. <laughs> I forgot the guy's name, but, but anyway, uh, no. In a lot of cases, they have to pay. <laughs> it's counterintuitive, but you know, you think about this: the U.S. government is spending a lot of money on these bases and they are ostensibly giving these countries protection from mutual enemies. And so they say things like, Hey, you're going to have to defray some of the costs of this defense of this protection that we're giving you. So yeah, in a lot of cases, these countries actually, they actually pay. Hmm. So, so I'm curious about the reaction. So we've got we've got U.S. bases in different formats, in different shapes and sizes. Some are enormous and they have movie theaters. Some are lily pads and they just have like a tank of gas <laughs> in Indonesia. <laughs> yeah, maybe a little bit more, but yeah, that's that's the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like like an MR like an MRE and a an AK forty seven. 
<laughs> in a cell phone charging station. Exactly. Like, <laughs> like a James Bond drop off. <laughs> yeah. uh, so there's all, all, all kinds of different arrangements that we've got out there. And there must be an impact in these places where we have these, uh, these um, different types of presence. Um, I'm assuming because some pay and some get paid that probably different countries have different uh, experiences. And it sounds like uh, for some countries it works. But I mean, what are, what are some of the reactions that we're getting from the host countries where we have military installations? It, it really depends on the country. There's no uniform reaction. But let me kind of give you, you know, a lowdown on this. As I mentioned, you know, some are very happy to have them there. Um, they're, you know, kept as a secret because of, of relationships, but they, but they kind of, they further some of the goals of, of some of these countries. So, yeah, some of them are happy. But on the other hand, you know, some are finding lots and lots and lots of, of little and sometimes major things to complain about. Um, and some of these are major countries and, and over you know, the past 10 years, Germany has found many problems with U.S. bases there. And, and one of them is environmental damage. And you wouldn't necessarily think of that as, as this big problem. But military bases have special rules. And in Germany, they don't have to go by, you know, their form of the Endangered Species Act. So, you know, they can kind of like dump pollution and not really get in trouble for it they can create these problems in terms of the way that they build things and and you know germany is somewhat of a progressive country right and in many ways it's one of the most progressive in the world they don't like that and and sort of the u.s coming in and saying hey we can do whatever we want doesn't really sit well with them um and and you can kind of see the effects of that with u.s you know, going away from countries like Germany and establishing bases in other easier to deal with places that have less money, uh, like the new Europe, right? Poor countries who the U S could basically like bribe more easily with economic incentives of, of hosting the bases because the bases do bring, you know, some economic gain to the, to the host cities, even, even despite the potential problems that they pose. Um, but you know, you've seen protests and demonstrations around the globe regarding U S bases. And I've already mentioned the part about, you know, some of these countries having to pay, but you know, in, in one place, Uzbekistan, the U S was actually asked to formally withdraw their base. But I guess the overall picture is that, you know, when the U S enters into these relationships with these tiny little countries, then it's going to be one of, of powerful and weak of, you know, empire and colony. And regardless of, of how the other countries react or feel, they can't do much about it. And, and when, when the U S establishes a new base or a new installation, it it sounds like there's a situation where they're, they're kind of sitting down at the negotiating table and they're, they're whipping up some paperwork. Right. And, um, and this plays into the environmental, laws that you were talking about so there's it sounds like there's something called a status of forces agreement and yeah this is like like what what does this do are these are special laws just for the the u.s military base 
Yeah, so let's call him Sofa. <laughs> it's more fun that That's way. That's pretty fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, status of forces agreement. Okay. So we'll call him Sofas. But anyway, like before, before the U.S. enters into any agreement with these countries. Um, they kind of like work out the major details and, and that's this big agreement that's before the sofa you know they they call themselves allies they list common objectives they talk about national security threats you know basic stuff yeah. but then comes this document that you mentioned the sofa and i mean really it's it's a really basic document it it says well it, the intention of it at least is is to establish laws for troops stationed there the u.s troops stationed there and that is, you know, as opposed to having the, those same troops abide by the laws of the host country. And, and it doesn't matter how sophisticated these host country legal systems are. It doesn't matter if this is Germany. It doesn't matter if this is Japan. You know, great nations, great societies. It doesn't matter. These agreements more or less bind the people operating there. And I'm talking about, you know, individuals. I'm talking about contractors. I'm talking about everybody. Uh, they They only you know are able to prosecute these people under u.s laws for the most part there's some obvious nuance to that but but these people have to follow u.s laws not the host country laws in addition to these bases the author talks about a couple other let's say let's say trappings of empire that he is noticing develop in the united states in recent decades and one of them is the cia and uh, he talks a lot. I, I, I took a quick look at this part, and he's it looked exhausting. He's going through all of these botched <laughs> operations in, in Chile and Cuba and Afghanistan. Yeah, let, and let, let's make sure to reemphasize that he was a CIA consultant, and he, oh, he wrote yeah. a book all about the CIA. Um, so, you know, you can kind of feel this is a labor of love for him in this, in this department. Yeah, okay. He probably has feels like he has some responsibility to... Shed some light on that stuff, um, but it but it sounds like it, there's a lot of books about the CIA and the details of these botched operations. His prior book being one of them, but it sounds like his his what may be a unique insight in this uh, passage is is specifically the CIA as it relates to presidential power. So right. wh- what is what is his question i mean this this seems pretty normal right like we see in movies how the cia delivers a daily briefing to the president and there's a lot of secret communication that goes on between those two offices i mean this makes sense right what's the question well okay so one thing that we haven't really spoken about but that plays a pretty central role in this book is is the notion of an imperial presidency um, and that's not just with the Bush administration. That's been going on for a long time. But the Bush presidency sort of exacerbated that. And, you know, when I say imperial presidency, it sounds, you know, kind of like a king in the president's chair. And that yeah. that is more or less what he's saying here. But to put that in specific terms, it's about the power of the executive, um, the mission of the, the executive kind of creeping into other parts of government you know we we tend to think about our government in this very uh, high school civic sort of way and, and that's all good and well to understand the the basic premise of it the basic setup of it what the founding fathers more or less wanted we think but it doesn't tell us much about how the government is run in the 20th and 21st century 
um, the legislative and judicial branches have lost power since 1945 and, and possibly even before that when, when you know, FDR was president. And the power of the executive has has taken on legislative roles, taken on judicial roles. You know, it's, it's sort of been able to, to expand. Right, executive orders, right? Executive orders, um, and and not just that, but, you know, the, the executive department in terms of the agencies that help write laws, that help um, clarify laws. You know, we talk about war powers. You know, it's written, everybody says, oh, well, Congress can only declare war. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, when's the last time Congress declared wars and, you know, uh, against Korea, I believe, hmm. or actually, no, I believe it was before that. Korea was the first time where you know the the president went to war without really consulting Congress. Later on, Congress gave it a rubber stamp. In the seventies, I want to say the War Powers Act was was passed by Congress, saying that the president could more or less do what they wanted to do, but in sixty days, Congress would have to approve it for it to keep going. Well, that's kind of been thrown out the window as we've seen during the Bush presidency. So, you know, the, the the imperial presidency is this concept that plays a key role in understanding the role of the CIA. And the danger of the CIA is that it's set up to be the president's personal army. You know, you, you talked about this intelligence briefing in the morning. Well, I think one of the problems that we face is that we tend to think of intelligence as this, you know, objective object it's something that just exists yeah. in and of itself right and it it can be collected or it's not collected well uh, you know chalmers kind of paints that in a much different picture uh, this is my interpretation of what he was saying anyway that you know intelligence isn't about the amount of it it's about the the subject of it it's about how it's collected it's about how it's formed because the the cia is not collecting, you know, this benign objective intelligence. It, it collects a certain type of intelligence, and that's the right information that will protect the president when they get into blunders. You know, we think about Iraq in 2003, yeah. and it's the type of information that could possibly lead to carry out some sort of policy that will help the president maintain power by, you know, pleasing key constituency groups. You, we think about donors in that case. So this this is the problem. And, and it's a problem for a lot of reasons. But really, you know, let's think back to the beginning of this conversation where we were talking about how militarism undermines democracy in key ways. Look, the CIA is unelectable and it's unaccountable. This is, this is you know, a, an agency that is more or less, you know, the, the director of it's appointed by the president. From there on out, it's run like any other organization people are are hired and fired based on you know whatever it may be merit or uh, allegiance whatever their sort of filter is they make those decisions we the people do not and that's not only you know makes them unaccountable for their actions but their budget too i mean we we don't know what they're spending money on everything in the cia is a secret and look they have one person to please it's not us right it's the president and the president with his expanding power. So this opaqueness, this lack of transparency that CIA has can lead to these really dangerous consequences. And, and those consequences, you know, undermine democratic principles. Hmm. Yeah. And I wonder, particularly if they are, forget even for a second about protecting 
the president and, and pleasing his interests. I mean, what if you have a head of the CIA who has his own aims and by withholding certain intelligence or presenting certain intelligence, he can alter the course of the country? I mean, that, that kind of thing right. probably happens too. Well, I mean, yeah, we've, we've seen the CIA suppress information. We've seen them omit information. We've seen them trick people into going war, right? Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll read a quote from the book that kind of paints the, the picture here a little bit better. Quote, the CIA remains the main executive branch department in charge of over- overthrowing foreign governments, promoting regimes of state terrorism, kidnapping people of interest to the administration and sending them to friendly foreign countries to be tortured and or killed, assassination and the torture of prisoners in violation of international and domestic law, and numerous other wet exercises that both the president and the country in which they are executed want to be able to deny. So, you know, we think about the CIA and, and what you just mentioned that it could be this, you know, somewhat rogue director of the CIA. Well, that's very plausible because part of their mission is to do these things to protect the president, but to do it so that he has or she has plausible deniability. It's very easy to go rogue with this, you know, cloak over you at all times and with with the mandate to do so the president gives you that they say you know you need to take care of this and i don't need to hear about it because i could get in trouble if i do but it needs to be done man i wonder if they're funding all those james bond movies just as a pr thing to make it look cool (laughs) maybe man the cia has been known to do far crazier things than that Look, John, you have convinced me to pay attention to this issue, okay? Uh, not one that was on my radar, but it, we do have a, a whole lot of bases, and uh, I think it's it, it, there's a whole lot of money. Um, and I'm wondering for anyone listening who may be like me and thinking, huh, okay, that's kind of, you know, I thought there were like seven bases out there, and it turns out there's 800. <laughs> Yeah, um, possibly more. I think the author's estimate was about a thousand, com- counting the ones that we um, kind of know about that aren't on the official docket, the, uh, the docket, the register. So, for anyone who feels odd about that number, you know, I wonder what we do because it's not like it just feels a little bit harder to organize around. Like, let's say something like healthcare. Okay, you know, we understand how that kind of policy is formed, but something like drawing down troops and and playing with the defense budget i mean that's something that happens kind of inside the beltway i mean this is this is um uh, pentagon stuff this is secretary of defense stuff and um the way that i follow this process is and this has happened in the past there's a couple examples uh robert gates um or, or maybe it was chuck hagel proposed uh pulling down the number of u.s troops not too long ago by uh, 80,000 or so uh, stationed abroad. 
And you submit a budget, it goes to Congress, and ultimately it seems like what you need for any of this to happen is to be able to count on Congress to approve it. So I'm hoping for a different answer here. I want the answer. <laughs> uh, I want the answer not to be that we need Congress to make a change here. But is that the answer? I'm sending a message to Congress right now. You congressional representatives, listen up. You are our only hope. Oh, man, I was afraid of no, that. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, of course. I, I don't doom us to that fate, not just yet. I mean, yeah, it, it, it would likely have to have some cooperation from Congress. I don't think it originates in Congress, though. I think it originates here. I think it originates with the people. Um, you know, and this is kind of like the, the, the same sort of answer that, that you always hear. But look, until people care about this issue, because there are people who care about it, but it's not the majority in, in either party. Until it, it becomes sort of part of our national conversation that the, the presidency, Obama, Bush, whoever it may be, Clinton, has too much power in terms of, of you know, its executive overreach. Until people start on both sides saying that the, the way that we sort of spread our might around the world in terms of military bases is just too much. It, it's money that we could spend much, much more effectively in other places until that becomes sort of the rallying call, the way that, you know, inequality has risen into our national conversation. I, I don't think anything's really going to happen with it. So if I am afraid right now, if I'm afraid <laughs> that we are the new Rome and then I've done my job, and Rome is scary, right? Because Rome is in the past. There was a rise, there was a fall, and and hey, man, we don't want that to be us, right? I don't like that. I mean, what going through all these topics? We have we have executive overreach. We have foreign bases. We have the the damage that that us being in some of these host countries is doing. Um, maybe to specifically to those people, maybe also to our standing in the world by by um, dumping environmental toxins and spurring terrorist groups to start up in certain places. Um, we have these weird SOFA status of forces agreements, and then there's this this existential threat to U.S. democracy that the author's talking about. <laughs> so if we, if we have yeah. all these, what what before listening to you talk about this, I would have guessed to be entirely disparate and disconnected subjects. Um, but according to the author, they form this cohesive uh, story that is posing a risk to U.S. democracy. I mean, I mean, with all of this out here that the author is talking about, what should we be leaving this conversation thinking about? Let me actually... Take the words from the author himself. Um, you know, I kind of want to wax poetical here because I really admire Chalmers Johnson in writing this trilogy because I don't think it was easy to write about and I don't think that it, it was easy to, to, to do 
because of the complexity, but also just because of his closeness with this material and his experience. And and just because this this is really controversial stuff that people who are powerful can kind of try to shut down. And because the author, you know, passed away soon after writing this and, and, you know, me just reading this book and us talking about it is my way of kind of like trying to push it forward as much as I can, because I think it's important. So I want to leave this conversation with, with his words. And he said, quote, in Nemesis, I've tried to present historical, political, economic, and philosophical evidence of where our current behavior is likely to lead. Specifically, I believe that to maintain our empire abroad requires resources and commitments that will inevitably undercut our domestic democracy and in the end produce a military dictatorship or its civilian equivalent. The founders of our nation understood this well and tried to create a form of government, a republic, that would prevent this from occurring. But the combination of huge standing armies, almost continuous wars, military Keynesianism, and ruinous military expenses have destroyed our republic structure in favor of an imperial presidency. We're on the cusp of losing our democracy for the sake of keeping our empire. Once a nation is started down that path, the dynamics that apply to all empires come into play. Isolation, overstretch, the uniting of forces opposed to imperialism, and bankruptcy. Nemesis stalks our life as a free nation. That's sort of the summary of what we were just talking about. And and he goes on to say, and once again, I want to quote him here at length, quote, I remain hopeful that Americans can still rouse themselves to save our democracy. But the time in which to head off financial and moral bankruptcy is growing short. This book was my attempt to explain how we got where we are, the manifold distortions we've imposed on the system we inherited from the Founding Fathers, and what we would have to do to avoid our appointment with Nemesis now that she's in the neighborhood. Unquote. Look, I don't want to become Rome just as much as you do. I think we've still got time. I hope that we've still got time. But something needs to change. But hey, if it doesn't, look, Rome has gelato, man. <sighs> there's a, there's saying. your consolation prize. Well, thank you for, for being ending on an optimistic note and not making me tease that out of you. So I appreciate The Nutshell Podcast is a production of PRJ Media. Get notified whenever there's a new show by liking our Facebook page at facebook.com slash nutshellpodcast. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next time.